Introduction to Traumatic Brain Injury by Dr. Lisa Del Signori. Hi, I'm Lisa Del Signori. I'm one of the critical care fellows um, at Boston Children's Hospital, and today we'll be talking about neuroprotective strategies for managing uh, increased intracranial pressure in the setting of traumatic brain injury. Principles of Traumatic Brain Injury. So first we're gonna start talking about some of the principles of traumatic brain injury. And typically what we think about is uh, you're going to see this in the setting of some type of traumatic mechanism. So whether or not this was a high speed motor vehicle accident or some other type of non-accidental trauma, uh, you will likely have some type of traumatic mechanism that is the cause of the brain injury. And you may see things like skull fractures or cranial deformation, or you could see things that are uh, more subtle, such as just intracranial bleeding that perhaps you see uh, on an infant who had a head CT for irritability or extreme lethargy. And in the setting of this, you might see things like epidural hematomas, subdural hematomas, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages, and the thing to think about is if you get a story where you don't have a traumatic mechanism to explain these uh, findings of intracranial bleeding, to always think about non-accidental trauma in your differential diagnosis. And the reason for the, this is um, these types of bleeding can occur from having uh, rotational or torsional injuries uh, in which a baby is actually shaken back and forth such that the brain gets compressed against um, the part, bony prominences of the skull and uh, can lead to some uh, bridging veins that tear and have bleeding into the intracranial space in the forms of the hemorrhages described. The additional finding that you can see in severe brain injury includes diffuse axonal injury in which the white matter is injured. And typically this happens quite frequently in children um, compared to adults. The thing to know about uh, traumatic brain injury is that all of the types of injuries we're talking about right now in terms of intracranial bleeding and diffuse axonal injury are often primary injuries that uh, we see. However, our management in terms of um, brain injury really focuses at preventing some of the secondary injury that can happen when the brain starts to swell after having a primary injury. Typically, peak swelling occurs within two to three days uh, post-injury, and what we see is this type of mixed edema form in which um, we have a vasogenic component uh, in which the brain the blood-brain barrier has been disrupted. And then we also have a cytotoxic component in which cell necrosis has led to an increased osmolar load that also contributes to additional swelling in the brain. Intracranial pressure versus cerebral perfusion pressure. In talking about our management, uh, we are really gonna be focused on trying to decrease the amount of swelling that uh, we expect the brain to have, and also target our therapies um, to prevent ongoing hypoxia or ischemia that may uh, act as a result of this increased swelling. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is the principles behind brain swelling in terms of the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine, which you may be familiar with. Essentially, this doctrine uh, states that the cranial compartment is incompressible, so the volume inside is a fixed volume. There are three things inside the cranium that make up its volume, brain tissue, blood, and CSF. Because the volume is fixed, these three things maintain an equilibrium such that when the volume of one component increases, the volume of another decreases. For example, when a lesion such as an epidural hematoma adds to the brain volume, there are compensatory decreases in CSF and venous volume, as you can see here. However, at a critical point, the CSF and blood buffers are not able to compensate for changes in cranial compartment volume. 
That is, when the volume increases too much, usually at volumes greater than 100 to 120 mLs, the intracranial pressure begins to rise as well, as you can see here. At this point, the intracranial pressure begins to skyrocket with changes in intracranial volume. And what we're trying to prevent here is reaching that critical point where brain swelling increases so much that the intracranial compartment is unable to maintain its pressure. And this is important because uh, the amount of intracranial pressure that we see is directly related to uh, the cerebral perfusion pressure, which is the driving pressure the brain is seeing in terms of delivering oxygen and other key nutrients to it. And cerebral perfusion pressure uh, is defined as the equation, uh, as you can see here, mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure. So for any constant um, mean arterial pressure, you can see that as the intracranial pressure starts to rise, your cerebral perfusion pressure starts to drop, which means that the brain will start to see less nutrients, um, less oxygen, uh, which can have deleterious effects on the brain in terms of ischemia and cell death. Update. The 2019 Brain Trauma Foundation Guidelines for Management of Pediatric Severe Traumatic Brain Injury recommend a minimum cerebral perfusion pressure of 40 with a recommended target range of 40 to 50 to avoid going below 40. For older patients, a target higher in this range may be used. And typically when we talk about managing uh, cerebral perfusion pressure, we think about uh, minimum targets by age. And we'll get into this in a, a little bit, uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but you can see here that um, less than four years of age, we try to target a cerebral perfusion pressure around 50 millimeters of mercury. Anywhere between four to about 10 years of age, we target around 60 millimeters of mercury as a minimum target. And greater than nine years, we start to think of them more as like an adult and target uh, cerebral perfusion pressure around 70 millimeters of mercury. Cerebral blood flow versus cerebral perfusion pressure. Next, I just want to talk about the relationship about, uh, between cerebral blood flow and cerebral perfusion pressure. Knowing that cerebral blood flow um, is going to be what's actually delivering nutrients to the brain and is separate from cerebral blood volume. However, if you have an increasing cerebral blood flow, you will likely have an increasing cerebral blood volume, which will also potentially increase your intracranial pressure. But you can see here the concept of autoregulation in the brain in that along a wide range of of cerebral perfusion pressures, your cerebral blood flow stays relatively constant um, until you hit the extremes either on the left side of the curve or the right side of the curve where the brain is unable to compensate. On the right side of the curve, you can think of this as um, the cerebral perfusion pressure is so high that now the cerebral blood flow just astronomically starts to increase um, due to overwhelming volume. And on the left side here, you can see that um, as the cerebral perfusion pressure drops between a critical level, your cerebral blood flow drops dramatically as well. And we can think about this in the setting of ischemia and probably putting the brain at a high risk um, for hypoxia and, and cell death. Factors that affect cerebral blood flow. So I like to talk about a couple of factors that um, in particular affect cerebral blood flow. One of them is the oxygen content uh, in the blood. And you can see on this graph here that um, at a normal PaO2, which would likely be somewhere between the 75 and 100 range, you have a, a relatively normal cerebral blood flow, which is anywhere between about 40 to 60 milliliters per 100 grams per minute. 
as the oxygen tension in the blood begins to drop, um, you know, closer to the 40 range, you start to see a large increase in cerebral blood flow. And effectively, that's uh, the blood vessels in the brain vasodilating uh, as the brain is sensing that it needs more oxygen to function. Um, and so you get a large increase in your cerebral blood flow and consequently your cerebral blood volume is going to increase and likely in that setting, if you already have a brain that is swollen, your intracranial pressure is also going to increase. And this will become important when we start talking about uh, some of the variables and management of traumatic brain injury. Another factor that affects your cerebral blood flow is uh, the uh, concentration of carbon dioxide uh, within the blood as well, measured as a partial pressure. And you can see here a normal um, partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood is going to be on the arterial side is going to be anywhere between around 40 to 45 millimeters of mercury and likewise you can see that your cerebral blood flow here is also at a normal range around 40 uh, milliliters per hundred grams per minute as your carbon dioxide level in your blood begins to rise you can see that your cerebral blood flow also increases and again that's uh, largely a, an effect of the ph and level of acidosis in the blood that causes the blood vessels to vasodilate again vasodilation, increased blood volume, increased cerebral blood flow probably will exacerbate any ongoing uh, intracranial swelling that is there. As you can see on the, on the left side of the curve here, where below a partial pressure uh, CO2 level of 40, the blood vessels in the brain experience vasoconstriction. And once you get to levels below 30, the cerebral blood flow decreases to a point where the brain is at increased risk of ischemia. I just want to uh, draw your attention to this figure as well, which I think is important to realize that um, there is a, uh, a portion of management in traumatic brain injury where we may have some ongoing reversible deficit that we're starting to see up front, and we're trying to prevent this from becoming permanently infarcted brain tissue. And what you're seeing here is across the x-axis, um, ischemic duration in hours, and on the y-axis, again, you're seeing cerebral blood flow. And what you can see is at a level that is about 18 uh, milliliters per 100 grams per minute, you start to see um, ischemic effects uh, that are potentially reversible starting to take place in the brain tissue. And the longer that the cerebral blood flow um, is at this low level, you start to see permanent infarction over time. And I would say at a level of about 18 milliliters per 100 grams per minute, around four hours is probably the time period you're gonna to start to see some permanent infarction. Likewise, if you start to have lower cerebral blood flow up front, uh, as in somewhere around 10 milliliters per 100 grams per minute, um, you're actually starting to see these effects become more permanently infarcted uh, quick, more quickly than at the higher reduced cerebral blood flow. And so it's important to think about things that are going to uh, put your cerebral blood flow at an appropriate level, keep your cerebral perfusion pressure up without increasing your intracranial pressure to uh, hopefully prevent any permanent infarction from this traumatic brain injury. Stepwise management of elevated intracranial pressure. So that takes me into thinking about how we actually manage um, strategies to lower uh, increase intracranial pressure, prevent um, further ongoing brain swelling. And again, going back to thinking about um, the brain uh, as sort of being in a fixed box, there's two ways to think about this. One would be there are strategies we can do to lower the intracranial pressure, such as some stepwise medical management that we'll go through, or surgical options such as placing a ventricular drain that could actually drain CSF out. 
or we could employ strategies that are actually going to increase the intracranial vault size, uh, something like a decompressive craniotomy where we're actually taking a piece of the skull off to let the brain swell out. We're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about that today. We're gonna focus mostly on talking about um, stepwise medical management um, and draining CSF out to lower the intracranial pressure. So here you can see is a stepwise uh, medical management of traumatic brain injury uh, that has been developed here at Boston Children's Hospital. And we're gonna go through this step by step. So here you can see on the base of the pyramid are going to be strategies that we'll employ upfront. And as our brain injury um, worsens or we're unable to decrease the intracranial pressure, we're going to take steps up this pyramid and employ um, additional management uh, to try to decrease the intracranial pressure. So I think the first principle to think about is targeting what is, quote, normal, and that a lot of our therapies up front are going to be avoidance of things that we know are going to exacerbate um, the brain to utilize more oxygen, utilize more nutrients, increasing its cerebral metabolic rate. We kind of want to keep the brain in a sort of uh, low-level functioning of normal. So one thing we're going to think about is temperature management, and we want the uh, patient to have normothermia, so a temperature that's around 36 to 37 degrees Celsius. We're going to avoid fever. Uh, we're also going to target things like normal glycemia, as we know the brain utilizes glucose uh, for energy, and we want to not have the glucose level be too high. If so, we would give the patient insulin, um, and likewise, we wouldn't want the glucose to be too low, um, and in that case, we would give a little bit of glucose back. But right up front, we're typically going to give the patient normal saline containing IV fluids without uh, glucose or dextrose in them and continue to watch the glucose levels and treat them as needed. The other thing that we like to target as normal upfront is blood pressure. So going back to our cerebral perfusion pressure equation in which the mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure is going to give you your cerebral perfusion pressure, we want to make sure that we have an appropriate mean arterial blood pressure to perfuse the brain um, in order to um, make sure that our cerebral perfusion pressure is at an appropriate target. So typically we target mean blood pressures that are going to be normal for age and if that about the 90th percentile for age and height based on the age of the child. Oxygen is another piece that's important that we talked about earlier and how it relates to cerebral blood flow. So again, we want to avoid hypoxia and we're going to target normal oxygen saturations. Um, and we'll talk about some, some ways that we can manage that in a couple of slides if you have an intubated patient. Carbon dioxide we also talked about previously and how and its effects on cerebral blood flow. And again, we like to target a normal range between 35 and 40 millimeters of mercury. And typically we're gonna to try to avoid hyperventilation in this, in this uh, instance, because as we demonstrated on our graph before, how uh, carbon dioxide affects cerebral blood flow, we don't wanna drive the PCO2 down to a point where we're now seeing effects from ischemia in the brain causing further secondary injury. And again, uh, to manage the PCO2, it would be very uh, difficult to do this, obviously in an awake and breathing patient. So we're talking about this mostly in the context of having an intubated and ventilated patient where we can follow their blood gases closely and their end tidal CO2 and manipulate their ventilator as needed. And we'll talk about this in a couple of minutes as well. We also like to um, avoid hyponatremia, um, as we know that sodium is an important component um, and decreasing swelling in the brain. Um, so what we will do is we target a sodium level that's between 140 and 155 uh, millimoles per liter. And again, this is important to prevent ongoing swelling in the brain. CSF drainage is another um, component that we can talk about. It's sort of the next, um, that 
we would do upfront if the patient had ongoing hydrocephalus or um, increased amount of CSF um, that's contributing to our swelling. Typically, we're going to need a neurosurgery consult for this, and actually EVD placement can be performed at the bedside, and it really serves a dual purpose. Um, so an EVD uh, is an external ventricular drain, which means that the catheter is actually placed in the ventricular system, so it can drain CSF out, but it can also transduce an intracranial pressure. And typically, we're trying to target an intracranial pressure less than 20 millimeters of mercury. Um, you may have heard of other types of intracranial monitors, such as parenchymal monitors or bolts, um, which can be put in other areas of the brain. Um, however, they can't actively drain CSF. So if your goal is to actually uh, decrease the intracranial pressure by decreasing the amount of CSF there, then you really need an external ventricular drain to do that. The next thing to think about on our uh, stepwise um, pyramid would be to think about things that are going to decrease um, the cerebral metabolic rate or the amount of energy that the brain actually needs to function and kind of keeping the brain at a very low level of functioning. And essentially what we, what we would do is try to increase the amount of sedation that the patient is seeing um, and potentially even think about things like neuromuscular blockade. Again, you will probably already have an intubated and ventilated patient at this point. Um, but using things like morphine and midazolam drips uh, for sedation and neuromuscular blockade, uh, such in the form of vecuronium or cisatricurium, uh, would certainly decrease the amount of uh, metabolic demand on the brain. Um, and that would sort of be the next step in our, in our pyramid here. If you're still seeing... Um, increased uh, intracranial pressure and decreased cerebral perfusion pressure after uh, maximizing our sort of normal goals for the brain, our sedation, our paralysis, we would probably think about other um, targets to increase the mean the mean arterial pressure to increase your cerebral perfusion pressure. And again, we could use things like vasopressors, um, such as norepinephrine um, or dopamine to increase the mean arterial blood pressure. Um, and uh, what we are trying to do by using vasopressors is to actually avoid giving more fluid. As we know, giving too much fluid will probably exacerbate some of the edema that's already there. Next on our pathway is the consideration of hyperosmolar therapy. And the goal here is really to create an osmolar gradient that is going to draw fluid out of the brain. And there's two ways to do this. One uh, is through the use of mannitol, and the other is through the use of hypertonic saline. Hyperosmolar therapies work by increasing osmolarity in the blood, creating a concentration gradient between the edema, or excess water, and the cerebral tissue and the blood. Hypertonic saline and mannitol are effective because they do not cross the blood-brain barrier, and thus they promote movement of fluid along a gradient, out of edematous brain tissue and into the bloodstream. So typically mannitol, we're gonna think about using amounts of 0.5 to one grams per kilogram aliquots. And how mannitol works is that it is essentially uh, like giving a large sugar uh, into the brain. It's gonna decrease your blood viscosity and it's gonna cause a diuresis. So it's important to think about giving a fluid bolus uh, when using this therapy so that you don't have an extreme drop in your mean arterial blood pressure that may also then decrease your cerebral perfusion pressure. We typically like to use hypertonic saline to drive the sodium levels up to the 155 range if normal saline is not getting us there. And this can be done by using different um, concentrations of hypertonic saline. So again, we typically use uh, 3% uh, hypertonic saline, but there are formulations such as 7.5% or 23% uh, that are used in the adult world. 
you can give this as a bolus uh, to initially just boost up your sodium. Um, the way I like to think about it is three cc's or three mLs per kilo of 3% saline will raise your sodium by three, just as kind of a rule of thumb. Um, and typically, uh, if you're going to give this long term, uh, as you can give it as a continuous infusion, it's really important to have central line access to do this as uh, giving uh, a osmolar load of this type um, through uh, peripheral veins over time can cause some damage to the peripheral vasculature. If we're still having increased intracranial pressure despite all of those uh, prior medical management um, and uh, we are seeing other deleterious effects um, in terms of cerebral perfusion pressure, we will start to think about employing mild hyperventilation. What I mean by mild hyperventilation is that we'll start, we may consider targeting a PCO2 in the 30 to 35 range as opposed to the 35 to 40 range. And really any levels lower than 30, we start to see an increased risk of cerebral ischemia or stroke um, and permanent neurologic uh, infarction. Additional things that we can do um, to decrease the amount of cerebral metabolic uh, demand uh, from the brain is to put the brain uh, into a deeper level of sedation using pentobarbital um, or propofol. Typically, propofol is not on our pyramid, uh, and we say to sort of use this with caution for long periods of time as there is the uh, potential to develop propofol infusion syndrome. So for that reason, we often think about pentobarbital if we're going to have days and days of a patient on uh, this, this type of continuous infusion. And again, with pentobarbital, uh, we're, we're really trying to target birth suppression and keeping the brain at a very, very low level of functioning. Uh, so when we have pentobarbital on board as a continuous infusion, we'll often have EEG leads in place as well, monitoring um, the brain waves. Uh, and the important things to side effects of pentobarbital to keep in mind is that it can get, give you a pretty profound hypotension. So you may need to go up on your vasopressor requirement in the setting of this use. Um, and additionally, over time, it is a myocardial depressant. Um, so just to keep in the back of your mind uh, with your intubated patient that they um, may see some uh, mild effects related to their cardiac function in the setting of prolonged pentobarbital. So after thinking about um, pentobarbital, that really takes us to sort of the maximum therapy on our pyramid here. Um, and at that point, we've essentially seen refractory increased intracranial pressure. Um, so I just wanna take you back to our pyramid one more time so you can get an overview of our, of our pyramid here. And hopefully um, managing traumatic brain injury aggressively upfront um, may preclude us from needing to go stepwise up this pathway. Um, but at times uh, we do see refractory increased intracranial pressure that requires these um, higher uh, therapies. Um, so with that, um, I thank you for your attention. Formal notification of the appropriate Child Protective Service Agency is indicated in all cases of suspected child maltreatment. Involvement of the Child Protective Service Agency will help ensure the future safety of the injured child as well as other children and siblings who may be exposed to the alleged perpetrator or perpetrators. In the United States, it is required that all providers file a mandated report if child abuse is suspected. Please help us improve the content by providing us with some feedback.